Well, good morning, Chillicothe Bible Church. What are we doing this morning? Good. You know, California is a beautiful state with lots of natural wonders. You can see the sycamores. Uh, you can, uh, I mean, not the sycamores, the uh, redwood trees, the, uh, what do they call those? Sequoias. That's the, that's the word I'm looking for. Um, sequoias. You can, uh, you can go to see the wine country and see those vineyards. Uh, you can see uh, the streetcars and the painted ladies in San Francisco. Uh, you can get out to the beach and see all kinds of sea lands and so forth. A lot of just an amazing beauty that is present in that state. Someday I hope to see it all myself. But um, one of the things, one of the good reasons not to live in California is because they have out there something called mudslides. Y'all heard of this? A mudslide is basically a dirt avalanche. Like it's not bad enough to have snow. No, no. What happens if they get too much rain in too short a period of time in California, given the nature of the climate and so forth? A lot of it is semi-desert, and that soil is not built to contain a whole lot of water. But in years where they get a whole lot of water in a short period of time, they have these things called mudslides, where the water and the dirt mix together and form this giant slurry, and then all of a sudden half of this hill starts sliding down. And when that happens, anything in the way, and I don't know if you've ever tried to move dirt even out of your garden, but if you're talking an enormous amount of dirt, it's an enormous natural force that moves houses off of their foundation that, in fact, will destroy a house in a second. And it buries everything in its path it's instantly in tune. Well, a few years ago, uh, there was a mudslide, and it took apart a house. And in one part of the house was a young married couple, and in another part of the house was their infant child. And mom and dad were safe and sound in the part of the house left standing, but the rest of the house, including their infant, sliding down the hill into the night. If you were a parent in that circumstance, what would you do? Well, after you cried out to God, I can tell you what you would do. You would get a flashlight and your boots on and you would go out into the night and into the muck and the mire and the filth of that mudslide and you would look for your child. Amen? And that's what they did. They looked all night long, calling their daughter's name. And when daylight came, they finally saw her. And she was covered in filth, but alive. Knocked around, bruised, cut, completely covered in mud, but alive. You know what they did? They took her home and cleaned her up and then moved. <laughs> True story. They moved. They're like, we're going to live in a place 
where my child will not be at risk of being swept away in the filth anymore. Now, with that story in mind, I'd like you to flip over in your Bible to the book of Titus. Chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 11 to 14 today. And so if you'd stand as I read God's Word to us, if you're able. For the great God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for Himself a a people for His own possession who are zealous for good works. Let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, You sent Your Son in search of people who have been swept along by the muck and mire and filth of this world. And You have gone in search of us and found us and washed us off and brought us home. And Father, it is Your desire for us that we would never be carried along and covered up by these things anymore but that You would create for Yourself a purified and holy people that would dwell with You and glorify You forever. And Father, I pray that, that the grace that saves us would be the grace that purifies us as we are looking for the appearing of the Savior. And Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, If you look at this passage, it's a short passage, uh, one of my favorites actually, one of the reasons why it appears in our cafe, I don't know how many of you know that, but if you pay attention to the writing on the walls, you'll find Titus chapter 2 verses 11 to 13, it is literally written on the walls of this building. Verse 11 is about the God who loved you, who saved you. If you look closely at it, with me, it begins, for the grace of God has appeared. Now, the word grace in that, circum- in that sentence there is, uh, is a figure of speech. It's being used as a figure of speech to talk about the action of the person who is himself grace. It's a figure of speech if you're an English teacher. This is called metonymy, where you talk about something in part as a reference to the larger whole of which it is, uh, as we, of which it is a, a defining feature, right? And the grace of God is talking about that that this has appeared. What does that mean? It means that God showed up giving grace. And the word appeared, you can't see it in your English Bible, but the word translated appeared is a form of a word you might know. It comes into us in English this way. It's the word epiphany. It's a form of that word. And in ancient Greek, this is the word you use for the sudden 
arrival of a hero or a god who suddenly rescues the fatally imperiled. And so if we were ancient Greeks, uh, we would use this word for the moment when in the Lord of the Rings, King Theoden appears on the hill and charges the Pelennor fields before the gates of Gondor. Have you seen this movie? Right? And the Rohirrim ride down and rescue the city and break the lines of the orcs and the trolls and the hordes of Mordor. Right? It is the epiphany, the appearing of the great and glorious hero. Uh, if we were, if we were wanted to be a little more mythological about it, we would talk about uh, that moment. Uh, you've all seen Clash of the Titans, either one uh, movie. Uh, but there's that moment when when uh, Perseus rides up on winged Pegasus, and he saves Andromeda, the princess, from the kraken with one look at the Gorgon's head. Right. And you have this glorious moment where all of a sudden, in a moment of fatal peril, the hero has arrived. He has appeared and brought a complete reversal of the circumstances where those who are loved are in peril. Because what is what the Bible, in other words, is saying here in verse 11 is that God grace came to us through the the incarnation and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is the sudden heroic reversal that we could never expect. That that Jesus is the literal deus ex machina where God Himself has descended to bring about the rescue. And He has suddenly appeared and obtained, what does the Scripture say? Salvation for all people from sin and death, and hell. And He's done it by means of pure gift. You know what separates biblical Christianity from every other religion in the, word, in the world? It is two letters. It is the difference between do and done. We've talked about this before. Every other religion in the world says this. They give you a list of things to do. Do this. Do this. Do this. Do this and do this, and you might earn the favor of Allah or ascend the noble eightfold path to nirvana, or you might, uh, you know, gain enlightenment or whatever. Meld with the universe, become a raindrop, etc. Right? Salvation looks different depending on where you are, but there's a there is a a list that you must keep. You know what the difference between that and Christianity is, according to the Bible? The fact that Jesus has done all that is necessary to bring about salvation. By the grace of God, salvation has come to all people and we have been rescued in a way we could never have expected. The white rider has come and rescued us from sin and death and hell and the devil. By grace alone, by faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. 
He is the God who heroically stepped in and came for us. But there's more. Look at it. Verse, that's our, if you want to put this in verse 11 in theological terms, this is our justification. Okay? Verse 12 is our sanctification. Uh, We are saved not simply to be rescued, but in order to live a Christ-like life. So if you look at verse 12, what it says, uh, sure to notice this that this is part of this great sentence. That verses uh, 11, 12, 13, 14 are all one big run-on sentence. Where they're all being linked together. And the point is, is that the grace that you see in verse 11 is the subject of all of these sentences. All of these lines. All of these verses. So in other words, the same grace which saves goes on. And it is the grace that transforms you to live a Christ-like life. Look at verse 12. It says, training us. What's training us? Grace. To renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live a self-controlled, upright, and godly life in the present age. In other words, you are trained to live a Christ-like life by the same grace which saved you. I want to focus your attention on that word train. It makes it clear that the process, that first of all, this is a process, and second of all, that you are not you are not sanctified by trying harder. And let me make it let me clarify what I mean. Okay. Uh Elijah is, uh, or Elias is not here uh, this morning, otherwise I'd pick on him. Um, but he is a runner. And he can run and run and run and run. And when he runs, he could be eating a sandwich and smoking a cigar out there compared to the way that I run, right? When, when I run, you can tell that there is effort involved, <laughs> all right? And I, you know, I look like, I look like a giant Clydesdale out there kind of plodding along. And then Elias runs like a deer. It's amazing, right? And, um, and, and, and the solution to me running better is not try harder, right? It isn't, well, hey, I'd like to be able to run a marathon. And you just go out, well, how far can you run? Well, actually, I can't. I uh, get out of breath walking to the mailbox. Really? Okay. Well, you need to uh, you need to you need to try harder. Well, that's not really a solution. No. Well, how far can you walk? Well, I can walk three miles. Okay. Well, maybe as you walk next week, you can try to jog a quarter of a mile and do your three mile walk. Okay. Well, I can do that. Well, then maybe the following week you try to to jog a quarter of a mile and and then walk a mile and then jog another quarter of a mile. Right? And then eventually, maybe you get up to where you're actually jogging a whole mile. Is that, is that better? Yeah, that's a big improvement. Right? Well, then maybe as you keep going, you can get to where you can run two miles and then three and then four and then six and eight. 12, 15, 20, 25, 26 miles. You did it. How did you do it? You trained for it. 
you entered into a process of growth and development whereby you experience over time transformation, right? It's a long road to get from can't walk to the mailbox without being out of breath to run in 26 miles, right? But it can happen if you're young enough. Anyway, it can happen. Um, and you can experience over time that transformation in your body, in your mind, that enables you to do it, right? The spiritual life works exactly the same way. That many of the things that you cannot do today, you gain the ability to do as you walk with Jesus, as you are trained by His grace. You are changed over time into a different kind of person than you started out as. And so the person who was angry and violent and profane in their speech and so forth over time, as they're trained by the grace of God, begins to rein that in and to be a different type of person you become a transformed person. And notice, by the way, too, that the Christian life is not one of self-effort. It is by grace that you're transformed. You aren't all on your own. It's a Spirit-empowered training, leading you and pushing you to grow into the kind of person that Jesus saved you to be. And so as you follow Jesus by continuing to pray, continuing to read the read the Word and to memorize it and to store it up in your heart and to worship with your brothers and sisters and witness about Christ and serve alongside them in various ways, you're increasingly trained by grace, empowered by the Spirit, and you become a different kind of person. And what does the text say that we're trained to do? Look at it. It says, first of all, to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. Now, let me explain what that means. That means that you and I, well, to be a sinner means that you are hardwired as part of the system that you come born into the world with a set of desires, a set of thoughts, a set of behaviors that are contrary not only to the Word and will of God, uh, but uh, to holiness in every respect. And so what seems natural normal and good to you is in fact evil, wicked, and perverse and rebellious against God on top of it. Amen? And so you have to learn to know as you're trained by God's grace to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. In other words, I need to learn how to say no to many of the things that I used to enjoy and take pleasure in and find natural to me because they are sinful. Having a desire to do something that you have had strongly and for a long time is not a justification for doing it. Because again, we are hardwired with a set of desires that are contrary to God's will. And so much of what seems right to us is in fact wrong. What comes natural to us is sin. 
And recognizing that means that we need to say no to many of those things and to start to, to have our attitudes and our thoughts and our desires shaped by God's Spirit and His Word. And so, for example, though the world says that porn is good, we say no to it. We, though the world says that profanity is just the way that people talk, we say no. We won't talk that way. Though the world says that taking advantage of people financially in a business deal is just good business, that fornicating with your significant other or having a friend with benefits or going on a one-night stand is just part of being single these days and you need to get with the times. Though the world says that drunkenness or getting high is just fine, it's a great way to blow off steam. Though the world says that lying is okay if you're just trying to avoid hurting other people's feelings or that you're just trying to protect yourself from harm or someone else. Or that abortion doesn't violate the command to love your neighbor as yourself. That it's okay to hate people if they're your political opponents and they hated you first. That it's okay to watch TV or movies that are shot through with with nudity or appalling profanity because that's just reflecting life in art. That all these things are fine. We as believers are trained by grace to say no to all of that and to have our thinking and our behavior and our speech shaped by God's Word and by His standards. Amen? That doesn't mean we become legalists that think that our righteousness is because of we do all these things and don't do all these other things. It is that out of love for God because we have been shaped by His grace. And by that, what I mean is this, that when we are overwhelmed by the reality that God loves the likes of us and sent His Son to die in our place for the likes of us. I mean, have you given yourself and your soul a good hard look lately? Paul says about himself, he says, I know that in me that is in my flesh dwells no good thing. To which I say, Amen. In my flesh, in my sinful nature, there dwells no good thing. And it is out of love for the God who loved me first and gave me salvation as a gift that I reject these things. Amen? Looking further into verse 12, we see the positive side. So it's not just saying no. There are things to embrace. Godliness is not just saying no to our sinful desires and rejecting sin. It's also the cultivation of positive qualities that replace them. If you look at your Bible there, you'll see them. Self-controlled, upright, and godly lies in the present age. We replace our worldly desires and sinful ways of going with self-control, uprightness, godliness. Three words that have to do with living a life that is directed toward and controlled by 
the Spirit of God, informed by the Word of God. And we conform ourselves to this, empowered by the Holy Spirit. And so we replace violence with kindness. We replace lust with self-sacrificial love. We replace greed with giving, etc. We become a different kind of people. The more we grow and are trained by the same gracious power that saved us, the more we're sanctified and purified and become self-controlled, upright, and godly people. In other words, people like Jesus who are being transformed over time more and more into people who resemble Him. And we do this, the Bible says, until Jesus appears. I love this verse. Verse 13, we sang about it this morning, and I love that. Because we cannot sing about this enough, that Jesus is coming. Verse 13, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. This verse gives us the motivation for our sanctification. Do you see it? Our motivation is eschatological. Meaning, it, that we are looking forward to the end of all things when Jesus comes. That you live your life in holiness now in recognition of the reality that Jesus is coming. And it's not a fearful thing for us if we're believers in Christ. You know, it's not like the bumper sticker I saw one time that says, Jesus is coming, look busy. Okay? It's not that. It's not that we're afraid of what will happen when Jesus comes back. It's that we're excited. That we're excited that Jesus is coming back and we can't wait to, to be with Him and anticipating the reward and glory that we will enjoy. I've told this story before, but my great uncle, Bob, was a pastor over in the state of Ohio, and he wore on his lapel every Sunday to church a little trumpet right here. And I asked him about it. And I said, Bob, what is that? He goes, it's a trumpet. I said, I can see that. Why are you wearing it? And he said, because it reminds me, maybe today. Maybe today. The trumpet call of God will sound and the archangel will scream and the dead in Christ will rise. And we who are alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the air and join the Savior. Maybe today. And we are living in light of that. We are living in the present age, as verse 12 says, but we are looking forward to the future age when Jesus returns and reigns. And don't miss how the Scripture describes Jesus coming. It's two things. First of all, it's our blessed hope. That is, it's the thing that we are sure is going to happen. Our hope. And it is uh, blessed because it is the fulfillment of a promise. We are looking to Jesus coming back and we know He's coming. And so we are living for Him now. Living expectantly with our hope for the future fixed on Him. And it is also... Look at this. The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is the second time in three verses that that word appearing shows up. 
And it's that same word, epiphany, that we are waiting for the white rider to come. With a name written that only He knows. Whose name is faithful and true and out of His mouth proceeds a sharp sword which is the Word of God. Amen? And the armies of heaven coming with Him and all men will see Him. And it will not be gentle Jesus, meek and mild, riding on the foal of a donkey with His feet hanging off the sides. He will be coming on a white stallion as King and God to establish His kingdom. And of the increase of His government and of peace, there will be no end, the Scripture says. And the lion will lie down with the lamb and the, and the little baby goat with the leopard and the little child will play by the hole of the asp. And they will neither hurt nor kill nor destroy in all my holy mountain. How many of y'all this last week as you watch the news need a reminder that that day is coming? And we're going to lay down our sword and shield down by the riverside and we ain't going to train for war no more. I need that reminder. That this day is coming. That the King is coming. Is the appearing, the sudden burst into history of the God that many people doubt even exists, but that we know personally and talk with and walk with every day. He is coming. And as lightning flashes in the east is visible even in the west, so shall the coming of the Son of be. And He will come in glory. Notice this. He is our great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Sometimes you read these these. Uh, it used to be there used to be a magazine called Time that came out, uh, like weekly. Another one called Newsweek. I don't know if they're even still around, even online. I don't think they exist, right? But they used to come out every year with their semi-annual heresy uh, editions at Christmas and Easter, and they would be these guys who were like, well, you know, we're not sure that Jesus historically ever existed, and um, you know, the early church, if he did exist, never really believed that he was God. And I always want to ask these guys, have you read your Bible? Right? Because look at how Jesus is described. This is not the coming of the glory of our great God, comma, and our Savior, Jesus Christ. This is Jesus Christ, our great God and Savior. You can turn the words around and they mean identically the same thing. In other words, that Jesus is not only the Savior, He is also God. And when we talk about Jesus being fully human as Josh did so beautifully earlier, uh, and last week we talked about Jesus being God in the flesh, that those two things are both true. That Jesus is our Savior and He is God. This is not something we, the church invented at Nicaea in 325 A.D. This is the ancient teaching of the apostles that accords with the 
demonstration of the Holy Spirit given by Jesus Himself. And the point of all this is that our salvation is tied together like a chain. That all these links are forged together. We are saved. How? By grace. And then we are sanctified by to, into a life of godliness by grace. And then we are rescued and glorified eternally by the same grace. And so our salvation is by grace from beginning to end. From the moment that we were lost and Jesus came and got us. All the way until the moment that we having been saved, Jesus comes and gets us. You feel me? That it is all linked together by this silver chain of grace that will never be broken. That it is grace that saves, grace that transforms, grace that glorifies and rescues. And woven through it all is the idea that we are transformed now in the present to become what we will be fully when Jesus comes for eternity. And there's one more amazing truth to look at, and I want to show it to you. Look at verse 14. Verse 14 wraps this all up and puts a big bow on it. It's amazing. It says that every part of this salvation by grace, our justification, our sanctification, our glorification, when our great God and Savior Jesus Christ appears again, is done in fulfillment of His ultimate plan and purpose. And what was that purpose? Look at the Scripture. What does it say? To redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession who are zealous for good works. Now think about it this way. Going back to the beginning of your Bible, whenever people fell into sin, what was God's purpose? To save out of sinful humanity people who would belong to Him. And so beginning all the way in the garden, God saved Adam and Eve. And God saved Abel and Seth and his descendants and Noah and his wife and their sons and their wives and people after them. And God saved Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and their wives and their children. And the nation that came from them were called God's chosen people because they are people that He is saving to be a people for Himself. And He invited people of all nations. In fact, this is written into the plan for the construction of the temple that there would be this court of the Gentiles that people from all nations could come and be part of the people of God. And Israel failed in many ways to bring people from all over the world into the people of God. But that was their calling. To be a shining city on a hill that would draw people to, to know their God and to worship Him. And so then Christ Himself came in fulfillment of all these promises to save out of the world and all of its lostness a people for Himself. And then, having redeemed us, He sent us out into the world in fulfillment of His plan and purpose to save a people for Himself. When that purpose is finally filled out, and the last person whom God intends to save 
has been brought into membership in God's own family, then the king comes. Because the kingdom will finally be complete. Look at the text here. His ultimate purpose in all these things is saving a people for His possession who are righteous and holy and zealous for good works, who have been redeemed and purified and made like Jesus. And these things are important. The word redemption there, you may not know this, but the word redemption is a reference to the ancient slave market. That you were purchased out of slavery and you were set free. And the word they use for that is redemption. You were set free. You and I, if you are a believer in Christ, you have been set free from slavery to sin and death and hell. You've been redeemed. Purified means that Jesus saved us to make us new people. And when His purpose is fulfilled finally and completely at His coming, that is what we will be. We will be purified and holy people who not only do not sin, but cannot sin ever again. I love these verses. In fact, if I'm being totally honest, this is these verses are the reason I preach this whole book. <laughs> so that I could get right here. These are the best verses in this entire book about what God has done for us. It is not an accident that we have these verses in part written on our walls. They summarize for us what God is doing whenever He brings salvation to us through faith in Jesus. He is not content to simply save us from the consequences of sin. He is also in the business of training us to break the power of sin over our speech and thinking and behavior now in the present age until the day when He appears when He will finally rescue us from the presence of sin entirely. Take it out of our hearts and lives and we will dwell with Him in eternity in glory. And in light of that glorious purpose that Jesus has for us in our salvation, I want to apply this text for us. That we might live in the present in fulfillment of the purpose for which Jesus came the first time and for which He is coming the second time. So I want to consider three questions together. First question, are you saved? by grace, through faith in Jesus. This is the most important question that anyone can ever answer. Is if in fact you know the grace of God, have you experienced salvation by grace through faith in Jesus? Jesus died for you and me, just like the Scripture says here in verse 14. He died for us. He gave Himself for us. He laid down His life dying in your place and my place for the sins that we committed uh, to take the penalty for sin that we deserve, which was death and hell, and to give us a new transformed life that culminates in glory in eternity with Him. But you aren't saved by good works. You aren't saved by church attendance. You aren't saved by being nice. All those are good things. But you aren't saved by that. Saves a person is, is God's grace 
and you responding to it with faith in Jesus. That you put your trust in the fact that He laid down His life for you. He died on the cross for your sins and was raised from the dead to give you new life. And when you put your trust in that, you receive salvation as a gift. And if you are not saved, today is the day and now is the time. Second question. If you have been saved by grace, how's your training going? The Scripture says that we are trained by God's grace to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age and to say no, to, to renounce uh, ungodliness and worldly passions. So, let me ask you, is your thinking just like the unbelievers that you know? Or more like the saints that you admire and the Jesus that you follow? Where do you need to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions? Are there hidden sins that you need to renounce and get free from? We talked about some of that last week. If there are, they need to not stay hidden. The longer they're hidden, the more power they will retain over you. We'd love to help you get free and train you to get free. How's your marriage? Is it joyful and happy? Angry, bitter, miserable? Somewhere in between. How about your parenting? Is it a hard but joyful calling as you help disciple your children to love Jesus and follow Him? Or maybe you're gritting your teeth and enduring and counting the days until they turn 18 and you can get them legally out of your house. Somewhere in between? How's your parenting? Is your work the primary location of your ministry? Or is it drudgery and a pain that you long to escape from? How about your inner thoughts? What do you spend your time thinking about? What do you spend your free time doing? What do you long to do when you're busy? When you're under pressure, to whom or to what do you turn for help and relief? Is there an increasing difference between the life that you used to live and the way that you live right now? Is your self-control, uprightness, and holiness more and more apparent to you? Please understand, again, training for holiness is not legalism by another name. But it is, increasing, it is increasingly living, empowered by the grace of God, freed from the burdens, and the weight, and the entanglement of sin. And if you're struggling here in your training process, I have great news for you. First of all, Jesus died sets you free from these things, and He can and He will. And secondly, you have a church full of people whose literal purpose in being here is to help you. That's what discipleship means. That's what we're here to do, is to make disciples, right? And so if these areas of life are a struggle for you, we are here to help you. In fact, that's the only reason we're here. Apart from worshiping God, 
is to help each other grow in Christ. So, last question. What's your motivation for getting up each day? Don't tell me because i got to go to work. Right? That's a terrible motivation. Right? i got bills to pay. i got to get out of bed. No. It ought to be because maybe today is the day. And God, having left you alive for one more day, has given you another opportunity to serve and to glorify and to enjoy Him in advance of His coming. We ought to be looking for expectantly that day when the trumpets blow and the archangels ring us. And we rise to meet the Lord. And that this day is a day we're going to glorify God, whether it's the final day or one of the ones in between. This day is the day we're going to glorify God because it will be the day when the Savior appears. Amen? Amen. All right, let's pray, and then we're going to baptize somebody and celebrate new life in Christ because I'm as wound up about that as I can possibly be. So let's um, let, let's pray, and then we will um, do our baptism. Um, somebody going to grab the kids? Oh, who's got that? Yeah, all right, Rachel. All right, let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have indeed sent your Son to be the Savior and to carry us all the way from beginning to end, from the moment of our justification until the day we are glorified. You have saved us by your grace. And Father, we are looking forward to the final culmination between that day and, and this one, Father, we pray that we would live in ways that are pleasing to you and give you increasing glory as you increasingly transform us by your grace and your Holy Spirit's work. Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.